I think people are too, they're in a rush. You know, you, you got to be able to sit out there with the trees. And I mean, be out there, you know, go have picnics. Don't just work out there. Um, but, you know, go for go for walks and bring your friends. And uh, it's a long term investment. Yeah, it's long term. Sure. Yeah, but it's not a short thing. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WSU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. You know, I, I'm actually not entirely sure how this one's going to go because the, the last of the few episodes that we've had, um, they were very topical. I think they were, we, we interviewed people that have very specific specialties in this field. And I think you guys, um, you have a very specific specialty, not that, not that you don't. I think it's just a little bit broader. I mean, I think there's more of a philosophical conversation we're going to have today. Um than a specific scientific one, which isn't bad. Yeah, no, I, I think I said to Lugene, we're we're specialists on us. We're not specialists <laughs> on root rot or uh, yeah. anything else, but we're specialists on you know what we do out in the woods every day. Yeah, right. Specialists on on your farm. Right, uh, exactly. Which is yeah. a beautiful farm, by the way. Thank you. Well, I guess for the podcast then. Uh, do you guys just want to go ahead and introduce yourselves for our listeners? I'm Ann Stinson, and I'm partner on the Callitz Ridge Tree Farm with Lou Jean Clark. And I'm Lou Jean Clark, partners with Ann Stinson <laughs> with the Callitz Ridge Tree Farm. Yes. Since 2016. Yeah. So we, we formed our own, uh, we kept the same name, but we made a new LLC after... Uh, the dissolution of the original tree farm after Steve's passing. Yeah. And and so can you give us a little bit of a history? Because you called this the Cowlitz Ridge tree farm. Was that the name? Yeah. So we're on the Cowlitz, we're on a ridge above the Cowlitz River, about three miles uh, east of Toledo, Washington. And my dad and mom bought this property in 1971. And then we moved here in 73. So I was nine and my brother Steve was 10, and my sister was seven. Um, Dad was working for U.S. Plywood at the time in Morton and was looking for um, some timberland of his own. And so he bought this property here, and uh, he grew it. He bought, in the, there were four parcels um, totaling 1,200 acres, um, one in Mossy Rock, one in Chehalis, one in Winlock, and one here. Um, and then after Steve passed, it was clear that me and my sister would not be good business partners together. So we um, dissolved that and Lugene, um got one parcel in Winlock where she and Steve had lived for since 90, 91. 91. Mm-hmm. And I got the home parcel here and then we put those two together and um, that's what we have now the 320 acres. And so you manage the the farm that you grew up on then? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's in the Gemini Grove. Why don't you talk about Gemini Grove? Oh, do we want to jump into yeah. that? Well, as the name implies, uh, since Anne and I are both Geminis, um, when we, uh, after we developed the LLC between the two of us, we wanted to um, set aside an area that would be uh, hopefully untouched in, you know, for as long as, at least as long as we owned it and managed it. So um, there happens to be a very old, over a hundred year old Douglas fir tree in the middle of this area that we called Gemini Grove that was a particularly special to Steve. And so we, after he had passed, we made that tree his Steve's tree. And it's a place that we go to to think about him and um, meditate and what have you. Put moss on him. Put moss on him. <laughs> um, but in and around that uh, tree, what is it? Six, six acres. Six yeah. acres. Uh, and it has a wetland in it and it's just a nice uh spot that we we hope that that we share with our friends and family and um we can go to it and just, yeah uh, and about what you're saying is that where i grew up i mean there, there's a wetland trail that goes through the gemini grove and i mean i've been walking on that trail for 50 years um which is kind of amazing to be going along the same place with the same trees um i don't know i really i like it i was thinking the other day about the ties to the land um uh where they do that um heirloom what's the, oh. the the you, you scale the yourself heirloom scale. the heirloom scale one yeah. through ten and once we we did that here and you know there were some people were saying well any land anywhere would be fine um and I'm like no this this land <laughs> i want this land to stay in in the family um and also the wetland area um we just discovered it's always a pain in the butt to get across that wetland walking in the winter. You just sink up to your hips. Um, but dad, like five years ago, found a log that goes across it. And, you know, it's, we had never found that log before. Anyway, Lou Jean's family was here a couple summers ago. Um, and I took three, their, their kids are eight and nine. Anyway, it, we, it became the monster swamp. You know, it was this very cool place for the, the kids to go to and pretend they were monsters in and you know it's just <laughs> it's a good spot to go yeah you said uh your your parents purchased it in 1971 was that what i heard yeah do you guys know much about the the history prior to it being purchased yeah so i did a bunch of research about that for the book um and uh so we we purchased it from elmer and dorothy boone um, and then they had owned it in their family for one generation prior to that. So like, like 1910s and then it, it went through a bunch of hands be, before that, but the original, uh, white owners were a group, a family called the Willoughby's and, uh, 
the, uh, Edgar Willoughby was a Civil War vet. And because of that, there's a ton of information on the Washington Civil War <laughs> website. Um, and uh, they had five kids. And it's not clear that they ever actually lived out here, but they owned it for a few years. They got it from a land grant. Um, but he he died tragically in a, in a, a, of alcoholism <laughs> um, in Everett, Washington. And then his wife sold it. Um, but and obvi- before that, obviously the Callitz tribe um, um, used this land, and so there's a chapter in my book about the Callitz peoples as well. Um, so that was really interesting to do the research on both those things. What did you find out about that? I, I didn't quite get to that chapter in the book. Um. So the main story I focused on there was um, a woman named Tassimuth. Her English name is uh, Veronica. She married. She was the daughter of um, Chief Skaniwa. He was one of the main Calus chiefs in the late 1800s here in Toledo. Where Toledo is now, there were two uh, villages, one on either side of the Calus River. Um, and he had, I don't know how many children he had, but... Um, he gifted her in marriage to Simon Plamondon, who was the first white trapper to come up the Cowlitz um, from the Hudson Bay Company in Vancouver. And the story goes that he was captured by uh, Skaniwa, and, uh, but he was French Canadian and spoke some uh, various native languages and some Chinook, so he was able to commun- communicate. And Skaniwa came to like him, so he, he gave Tasmuth to him to marry. Um, but anyway, they had four kids and um, I was able to meet the descendant of one of those uh, kids. Wow. And so he told me a lot about um, that story of Veronica. Um, and uh, she, I had always sort of imagined her, you know, in the village with her children by the river, living the traditional life. <laughs> um, but she went with Plamondon to various Hudson Bay uh, forts and actually um, and gave birth in one of them. And she died early. And it's not clear uh, why she died or when she died. Um, but she actually died before the um, sickness that killed 80% of the Callitz peoples in the 18... Uh, my, I'm getting my dates not quite right, but she, she died before that. Um, and he went on to marry three more times, um, and had, I don't know how many kids he's prominent name around here. There's a Plamondon road. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really fascinating in your book, the, well, the depths that you go to dig into the history of the land that you, you know, grew up, were raised on. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, so for a little context, just to the listeners, right? Um, one of the major reasons that we wanted to bring Anne on is because she just published a book called The Ground at My Feet, um, which is a beautiful, would you, I don't know, would you call it a memoir, Anne? Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's this beautiful memoir written about. Yeah. No, it's got a mix of genres, but yeah. it's it, a memoir. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's this um, story of your your farm um and not just during the time that you owned it as you're kind of telling us it's it's you go back as far 
as far as you can. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious in that process, you know, obviously that's going to change the way that you look at your farm now. Um, what was that like, you know, digging in and, and just getting like the complete historic picture of your land? Tough question. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the places, the places that it's changed for me is the spring. So we, we get our water from the spring still. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's been there for who knows how many hundreds of years. <laughs> and I sort of imagined um, Esther Willoughby uh, getting water from the spring there. And uh, I imagined then I made up a, a story of me crossing the time barrier and <laughs> meeting her there with her kids um, and having a picnic. And I think of that every time I go um past that spring. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I imagine, you know, I, I hope that whoever owned the land loved it as much as we do. And, you know, I just, I wonder how they thought about the trees and, uh, um, and, and if they were able to get a, a green infusion as my dad calls it, you know, mm -hmm. get a new forest <laughs> bathing feeling out of, out of the woods, or if it was, you know, just a source of income or, or lumber for, for them. I mean, I think everybody's got a mixture of those things. Um, and I, I do, you know, dad has found some, uh, arrowheads. I've never found one. I'd love to. So I keep looking. <laughs> the piece that I really liked about that is just, you know, you, you mentioned ties to the land, which is a class we do to just basically facilitate the, the transfer of ownership, you know, from generation to generation or, or otherwise, I mean, it kind of expands the box a little bit, this idea that you could pass your land on to someone outside of your family, but it still be, um, you know, a very meaningful transfer. And I feel like that's what happens between the Boones and your dad. And now you're enjoying that land and, you know, decades later, just really cool story. No, we, you know, the, the shed down at the end of the driveway is Elmer's shed, oh, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's what we call it. That's where, where the, where the tractors and some firewood is. Yeah. So, and you, you were born on, uh, or not born, you moved there. How old were you when you first moved? I was, I was nine. I don't know. I loved being on the farm as a kid. I made, you know, I spent time, tons of time underneath the big leaf maple tree, making my own little towns and um, driving cars through it. And I know we also had to work. There was the, the overall training program that the three of us were <laughs> indoctrinated in. I mean, every Saturday we up and at them, glad to be alive and in the core. Um, we had to get up and go out and work in the woods, uh, whether we wanted to or not, we got paid, um, a dollar 25 an hour, uh, Steve got that. We, the girls got a dollar an hour. <laughs> I know he was older, but still. Yeah. Um, and That's... if we wanted, if we wanted more money, we had to ask for it. We had to say why we wanted it and what, you know, our worth was. And every Saturday we wrote down our hours, whether we had been doing firewood or mulching trees or whatever, pulling tansy was another big one. Um, we wrote down, we wrote six and a half hours and then dad signed it. And at the end of the week or two weeks, 
we added it all up and we got a check and uh <laughs> anyway yeah no it was you know it was it was good we learned we learned how to work that's for sure yeah so what you're describing um you know for some people like yourself it's it's a very you know it's a fun memory i think for most people it probably is a fun memory but it's also some for some people the reason that they're not particularly interested in coming back to manage the tree farm. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I wonder for you, like, why, you know, why was it different? What brought, you know, how, what, what, when did you hear the call to come back? Because I know you lived in New York City for quite a while. Oh, it was late. I mean, I left. I'm the only one who, I don't have a, a science degree. I'm a humanities person. My first degree was in English. My and then I got a master's degree in East Asian studies. You know, I have no science in my background. I lived in New York City. I lived in Tokyo. Um, but I, I, when I was 40, um, I was still, I was living in New York City. I had been divorced for about five years. I was teaching school in the Bronx. And the tree farm started <laughs> calling my name um, and my family. I mean, I, I don't know if my family hadn't still been living on the farm, if, if, the, if the woods would have called me. Um, and even then I moved to Portland. I didn't move back to Toledo. Um, but it was after Steve passed um, that, um, I mean, somebody, I mean, dad, I don't know. I mean, someone needed to do it. Um, but also I, I wanted to, at that point, I wanted to work with Lugene. Um, and, uh, so that's, that, that's when I, so right now I spend half my time here and half my time in, in Portland. Hmm. Um, so, um, and I, I love, I love being here and I love being with my dad and mom and Lugene and walking the wetland trail and saying hi to Steve. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I I'm compelled to give a little bit of background to because um, we've mentioned Steve several times. Oh yes, yeah, you know, Steve Stinson. And for me, it was a name that I heard on you know repeatedly after joining this job. You just couldn't uh, you know everywhere you went, there was some legacy of the work that Steve did with small forest owners in Southwest Washington, you know, the family forest foundation, which you are both members of, and I'm a ex officio board member as well now, which is great. <laughs> um, you know, it was one, just one of many though. And he was, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, just has legend status when it comes to <laughs> technical assistance to small forest owners. And, um, sounded like such a wonderful person. I, I, I wish I had gotten to meet him at some point, but it's uh, certainly his, his legacy precedes him. I know, Lugene, you, um, you met, we were just discussing, you met Steve kind of post high school, but I'm kind of, because you grew up in Toledo too. Did, did you know Anne and Steve? Were you involved in the farm as a kid at all? Was there any communication <laughs> no. there? Well, yes, I've been in Toledo since I was two and a half. I was born in Seoul, Korea, mm. and at two and a half uh, years of age, I was adopted by um, Georgia Noma Clark, and um, back then, way back then, that was, 
kind of a very, very new uh, thing as far as adopting children from overseas. But, uh, and to their credit, they did a lot of red tape. And uh, anyway, they eventually adopted um, myself and my uh, sister. And so, yeah, I grew up in Toledo, which is primary, it was a logging community, was their primary um, economy. Uh, so my dad did um, log cottonwood, I know, for a while, him and his family. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I'm very familiar with that type of environment, the, you know, forest, small forest landowners. And, um, but I really didn't get involved like I am now, as far as, uh, working on a tree farm. I mean, my, my dad, uh, and mom had 150 acres of forest land, but we didn't work it like Doug and Bay Marie. <laughs> Intensive management was right. not the... Uh... No, that was not the primary uh, yeah. source of income or uh, they just let the trees grow, basically. And um, But we enjoyed, of course, l- growing up in, in the country like that, um, in the forest. But um, Lou Jean, you said you've got a background in environmental science, but and you, like you said, you have this background more in um, teaching and English and a, a very different educational upbringing compared to environmental science or forestry. Where did you guys go to get your education or knowledge about how to run your tree farm when you came back into this life from not being a part of it? Well, I married into it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we went to the Stephen and Douglas P. Stinson School of Forestry. Yeah, is that and accredited? Still... <laughs> it should be. <laughs> no, you couldn't ask for a better teacher. Uh, both Steve and Doug were very, very knowledgeable, and uh, Doug is our guiding light. Yeah. To uh, still so. And we've we've gone to lots of Lewis County Farm Forestry, um, you know, meetings and also tree twilight tours, learning from other tree farmers. Everybody does it just a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And so you can learn a lot just from walking around in people's woods with them. Um, So we've gone to every you've probably been to way more than I have. But, um, yeah, you know, Um, every annual meeting, (laughs) every Lewis County monthly meeting yep yeah. yeah did a lot of ties what? to the land with steve um so yeah uh, it's we you know the the tree farm small forest land or tree farm community community are just a great bunch of people yeah uh and they're always willing to share their knowledge and um we're we're trying to reciprocate in, in our own small ways. Um, we did yeah. a tour, a tour this summer, yeah, yeah, with the Lewis County Farm Forestry, and yeah. uh, I know in the past they've had Project Learning Tree come out. Uh, we've had the Evergreen State College uh, students out. Um, so. And I remember once when I was just deciding I wanted to do this. Um, a family friend, Larry Mason, 
Mm. he said, you're not a forester, but you can be a tree farmer. <laughs> and I thought, yes, you're, you're right. I, I can be a tree farmer. I'm never going to be a civil culturist or an expert. But you, you don't have to be. There are experts out right. there when you need them mm-hmm. um, if you want to grow trees. Do you guys work with a consulting forester or do you guys do this all yourselves? Douglas P. Stinson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. But no. when we need work, I mean, logging done, we, we turn to Tom Fox, for example, mm-hmm. with Tree Management Plus and Binnings. We use... Um, uh, four, four seasons, four seasons. Yeah. Tim Graham. Um, so, you know, we get the experts when, when we need them because we, I mean, we don't have the we don't have physical expertise. power yeah, right. or the yeah expertise to, to do that. So one of the things I'm really curious about is it seems like from the last year and a half that I've been a part of this program organization and got to know a lot of small forest landowners there's kind of been this generational shift or maybe not general multi-generational, but there's been a shift happening over time of people who are less and less, uh, I, I don't want to use the word attached, but they, they're not as involved in their land quite as much as some of the older generation used to be. Mm. Have you seen that? And I mean, what do you, what do you, what would you say to those folks who are more absentee in their ownership? They're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Um, I mean, it's reflected in, if you go to a Lewis County Farm Forestry meeting, um, there's a lot of uh, of the old generation there. That we, we are getting some new interest uh, by younger landowners, but... Um, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if you're not like Anne or uh, Steve or Julie that grew up and I mean, you know, they're, they, Steve and Doug were just passionate, of course, about tree farms and they're kind of exceptional among uh, just the way they've managed their tree farm. And I think on a tree farm, you can do as little or as much work. You can be out there every, <laughs> every day, day which Doug is. And, uh, or you can be out there once a month or, but I would agree that, uh, the interest, I think, you know, like they say, a lot of the kids, you know, they go to the city or mm-hmm. go elsewhere to find employment and they, it's, that's why we're losing so much uh, forest land is people, um, they don't have the heirs that are interested in, in carrying on the, the tree farms. But, and I also think, you know, I, no one would have thought that I was going to do it when I was 30, you know, that I'd come back and neither Lugene and I have kids. My sister's the only one who has kids. She's got two uh, boys one named Timber, one named Griffin, um, and they're 24 and 22, and they don't seem interested now. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, when they're 50, we'll we'll be ancient, but um, exactly. I mean, yeah. you didn't ever probably exactly. Yourself. I never saw myself here, so who knows what will happen? And yeah. Lugene has some nieces and nephews, and you know, I, I, we don't. We want the the land to stay in trees. Um, we're not sure how that's going to happen, but we have a few ideas, yeah, but yeah. where it's nothing concrete at no. this point. Yeah. 
Well, I think anyone, if you own forest land, go out and enjoy it, man. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know why owning it if you're not going to go out and enjoy it because it's just wonderful to be out there. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's interesting too. So I have definitely more of an east side bent to my um, perspective. And with that east side bent, like a lot of it is we have overstocked forests. We've got very dry forests. These forests are meant to be very dense. So a lot of people out here, it's not just owning land. I mean, there is a lot of people buy land that needs to be actively managed um, in a very different way than active management on the west side is. And it's been pretty interesting trying to have that conversation with people kind of like tending a garden in a way, right? But it's this 40 acre garden. I mean, I think once you say that, a lot of people's eyes kind of get real big and they go, oh, 40 acres and I have to thin this. I mean, that's a, and it's a lot of work. It, it really is. Yeah. I wonder, um, you know, because the, the problem that you presented is, is really, I mean, I don't know if it's becoming more common. It's hard to say. I just have anecdotal evidence of just being on this job, but where where landowners you know east side or west side um they they don't have anyone to pass on their land to whether that's because they you know they have heirs potential heirs but they're just not interested because they're off on the other side of the country and they can't change their lives to come back or they maybe don't have you know never had children or or some situation where it's the question is looming of what's going to happen you know, there's this part of my brain is like, I know there's people out there um, that want to own forest land, but they can't because, you know, it's it's difficult. It's more difficult now to like buy 140 acres than it was mm-hmm. right. 60 years ago or so. And I I feel there's an opportunity there um, to, to, you know, do what, what we were talking about earlier, what the Boons did. Uh, put an ad out in the paper if you want to, <laughs> to find somebody who's going to care for the land and carry that legacy on, even if they're not a part of your family. I just kind of wonder what you guys think of that, you know, being in that position uh, or just being in the position of uh, being a landowner and thinking about the future of your property. Right. Well, I know um, that uh, there, um, Steve and some of of the other landowners uh, who also formed the Family Forest Foundation uh, have, they formed the Family Forest Legacy Program with the, in mind that it was an, a tool that landowners who didn't have heirs or heirs that didn't have an interest in carrying on the tree farm could uh, invest their forest land into the Legacy Program where it would be a stay in trees in perpetuity and um i i was a member of that uh, group for a while and uh the legal and tax um Hmm. issues that came up trying to um to you know get that that project that type of project to happen um, they, they had a lot of help from, um, attorneys and, uh, tax people. And once they got through that, you know, the next hurdle was convincing landowners to, to take that step 
and enroll their uh, property in in the program. And they're still <laughs> kind of at a stalemate right now. Uh, but it, it was a, a foresight of, of seeing that we were losing forest land to development because if you don't have someone to carry it on, then uh, you end up selling it. And usually to, maybe to development. And so we still have hopes that this program will take hold and that that will give small forest landowners another tool uh, to, that will enable them to, to have their forest land in, you know, forever. Yeah, and the, and the way that it works, they invest their land and then their heirs or whoever they choose can reap the re- benefits, the profits from mm-hmm. it. Um, but so far, yeah, that hasn't worked. Money is a problem, you know. Um, the right. heirs, want, heirs want money. They don't want work. Um, and so that, that's difficult. Um, and so, no, I mean, I, you know, it would be a great thing if, if we, as we age, <laughs> could have some young family living down the road that would take, you know, could buy this and take care of it. Um, you know, finding just the right family and trusting them and, uh, you know, and finding someone who can pay and do you give a discount if you right. think that they really will take care of it of course yes but how do you trust that you know um that that's those are hard questions mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is it's really hard um the ties to the land program that we mentioned is just such a it's such a critical program yeah for landowners even even new landowners you know, I mean, it might be in their 30s or something and the state planning is just so off far off in the distance it's such such an important thing to be thinking about always you know just early on it's a it's a weird class to give as a forester because you just i'm trained <laughs> to go and talk about thinning yeah, and right. now i'm yeah. i'm hearing you know talking about family. heart <laughs> yes yeah yeah and families yeah. are airing out some dirty laundry too yeah and, i mean they're yeah. really fun classes don't get me wrong yeah. i'm just yeah. like oh i have a forestry degree this is not <laughs> this is not what they trained me for but also yeah. so, so important. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful to, cause you, you've come and talked, uh, opened for some of my ties to the land classes, which is really yeah. great. And I think your book does uh, a really good job of kind of weaving in family and, and legacy into forest management, you know, actually getting on the ground and planting trees, fighting weeds, all of that right. stuff. Yeah, you know it's hard to you know it's hard to really separate those honestly when you when you live on the land and take care of it. Right. Yeah. So. Now, and one of the things we've been proud of recently is our mixing of species. Um, we've got in our in, we've traditionally planted pure Douglas fir, but because of root rot and other issues, we've got ponderosa pine, western white pine, red cedar, incense cedar, Port Orford cedar. We've finally got dad to stop calling them exotic species. Um, and uh, and uh, he's, he's, he's happy about it now, too. Um, so that, that's been fun to watch those different um, species grow. So what, and, and I say this lovingly, having been to your farm, but you have some such interesting forest health issues <laughs> on your property. Yeah. Oh yes, we do. I, and, and I say that as a bystander, so I know all the 
all the headaches that come with it. I, I haven't experienced firsthand, but yeah, you've got a replanting job that you've taken on with some serious root rot. You've also had some uh, interesting insects uh, taken on your dug furs. Can you yep, talk a sure. little more about all of that? <laughs> well, um, yes, we've had, uh, well, wildlife damage, you know, anywhere from trees to porcupines. And then, um, of course, our drought uh, issues. So, as you may know, once a tree gets stressed from from drought, then it's, it makes it more susceptible to any of those diseases like the fur tip weevil or... Um, so we try to manage a lot uh, for disease and also with these new species for us, uh, something that may be a little more drought tolerant. Um, also maybe doing some different management styles like not planting as many trees per acre or thinning uh just something that will help the trees uh survive these hot summers and um yeah another thing we're doing with that is we're leaving more slash on the ground um so that the ground doesn't get baked with the the summer heat that also helps us burn less um, so we just did one cut at, uh, in Winlock this summer that we didn't do any slash burning because it was a really straight old uh, Douglas fir with hardly any branches except for right at the top. And so we were able to just leave that on the, on the ground. Um, and then we did a little logging here where we had more cedar, so there were more branches. So we had to do a little bit of, of, uh, of burning, but um, we did, we're still leaving a lot more um, debris on the ground to protect the the soil from the summer heat. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's it's completely the opposite over here where we're trying to increase the pace and scale of burning the landscape. Uh, <laughs> because over here, if you leave any amount of slash on your forest mm -hmm. floor and you have fire come through, it doesn't matter how much you've thinned that stand. It's going to cook it and it's going to kill all your trees. Right. Uh, and, and we're expecting fire to come through. It's not like it's, we're hoping yeah. it doesn't. Right. But, before we totally get off of it, get away from this successional discussion ties to the land, you guys have had kind of two very distinct portions of your life when it comes to talking about the future of your forest and who's going to own it. Can you give us a little bit of a background of what that conversation looked like when, it, when, you, when your brother was still around and then what, how that conversation changed uh, after his passing? Yeah. So, um, in, we originally had something called the FLP. What, family limited. Family limited partnership. Yeah. That's what it was. FLP. Yeah. And, and that one, we, each children, each child was given a specific piece of land. Like Steve had Mossy Rock. I had, I don't, I don't remember exactly how it got divvied up, but then, um, I think through ties to the land, Steve learned more about the LLC, um, uh, device instrument they call it an instrument <laughs> um, and so in 2012 um, mom and dad transferred all of the land to the three children um, <laughs> via an LLC and um, so the three of us owned percentages of all of the land equally so 33 and a third percent um, and Mom and dad, most of the land was transferred to us directly. They'd been doing that gradually over the years to um, 
reduce taxes, income or inheritance taxes. Um, but we owed them some some money um, that they would be paid out every year as sort of an annuity for them as they aged. Um, so my dad is right now he's 88 and dad, mom's 87. Um, so then they the LLC was finalized in 2012 and that was also the year Steve got sick. Um, so, but we were going to power on. I mean, especially, I mean, Steve got sick, but he, he, he wasn't going to die. <laughs> um, and we were all very hopeful at first, um, that it was, you know, he would be, he'd be fine. Um, then he wasn't fine. Um, and for the first year, right after his passing, uh, the three, the, um, my sister and I tried to keep it, um, together in the family. Um, Steve's portion was put into a trust for Lugene, but it wasn't hers outright. So there were, um, anyway, um, it became clear within the first year that my sister and I being business partners was not a sustainable proposition. Um, and so, uh, we dissolved the original LLC and paid back, um, mom and dad. And I got Toledo, Lugene, not the trust, but Lugene herself got um, the piece of land in, in Winlock. And my sister got a piece of land in, in Mossy Rock. Um, and that, the first piece of land we sold, we sold to Port Blakely. And then Julie, my sister, sold her land to um, Port Blakely as well. So we're pretty pleased that Port Blakely got it. Um, not a developer. Um, they're nice to the land. Um, and I think it's worked out really well. Lugene and I, um, and dad, 320 acres is plenty for us to, to manage. If we had the original 1200, we'd be running around with our heads cut off or having to hire a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's just not what we're in it for. Um, so in the end it was bittersweet. I think I mm -hmm. was saying that dad would have just kept buying more and more land mm -hmm. and imagined that his nephews and, or not, excuse me, grandchildren and great grandchildren would be the ones running it. Um, doesn't work that way. Um, but the other thing is because we had that LLC structure, we were able to dissolve the tree farm in a not terribly messy way. The least probably painful but, way legally that you can. Right. Cause it was the steps were set out for that. You know, it says what to do in case of, you know, mm -hmm. and what if, yeah. So. And we'd all signed it. You couldn't argue with it. You know, that was the way that it was. So even if your best laid plans, you know, I mean, we've all did ties to the land, you know, we, we, we were the poster children for, mm, why, for the, why you need to, <laughs> yeah. yeah to, um, um, and then have an it, estate plan. Right. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work the way we planned it to, but the fact that we had it made it much easier. Is your guys' property in a conservation easement? I know you'd kind of talked about this. Is no. is whose? Ours? No. No. Huh. Why why is that? Because it seemed like that was a tool that you guys were talking about earlier with the program you were you were building. Oh, that's not a conservation easement. The no, that's a family forest um, legacy program that I, uh, that is a, a considered an investment. It's an investment. The contract is that you, it, your forest land will be in forest land for 
perpetuity. And any management um, sales or whatever during um, or while while it's in the program, part a part of that proceeds will go to uh, a beneficiary, whether it be a their children or um, a charity, a charity, nonprofit. Or yeah. yeah. So uh, there is some return to back to the family or whoever they choose. Uh, once they're in the program, but like um, one thing we found out is we did have a couple families very interested in the in the legacy program, and then because they had children, but they weren't involved until the thought that their parents were going to <laughs> take the forest land and put it in this program, then they suddenly became very interested. And um, and persuaded their parents not to enroll it into the that they would like to manage it manage themselves. It yeah, because I mean or, they still would have gotten the profits. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure they wanted to manage it. They just wanted to make sure you know. But it did start the conversation within each of those families. That was the good thing um, that came out of it. That they. Actually, started talking to each other about what was to become of the tree farm after their parents were gone. I think it's really difficult. You know, when you, if you talk to bean counters, as my dad calls them, the accountants or <laughs> anybody who is interested in the bottom line, That's... you don't become a tree farmer. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're if if your goal is to make the most money you can from a piece of land. It's not by raising trees for timber if you live anywhere near a town. Um, so, you know, even though the Family Forest Legacy Program is an investment and you're making money off the trees, you're most likely going to be able to make more money if you sell it for development. Oh, undoubtedly. And, yeah, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's very altruistic what all these tree farmers are doing. Um, and we all need lots of pats on our backs instead of more of, regulations. I mean, most of those tree farmers have, that's not their sole no, income. I mean, right, they have right, jobs, exactly. uh, other yeah. jobs. Yeah. I mean, your dad didn't no. start until he's 57. Right. A full time as a tree farmer. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was reading your book, you, you kind of have this, uh, can I actually read a paragraph from it? Am I allowed to do sure. that? Okay. Of course. So, um, yes, it's been published now. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were talking a little bit about uh, br- when you were young, bringing people over to your property, uh, and you know you weren't <laughs> sure about showing people the clear cuts and and your family's management style, and you you know how to communicate that. And you have this paragraph right. here. It says, "Language is part of the problem. We don't have a good name for our land. Non-industrial private forest is too bulky and tells what we aren't more than what we are." Timberland conjures up lumberjacks or shoes worn by hipsters, which I loved. (laughs) Tree farm makes people think of Christmas trees. The woods is what dad says when he's going out to mulch tube or thin. That's not really a name. And forest conjures up a a park, retouched nature. But when was this natural? And so you you go on to talk a little bit about uh, bringing a group of kids out to the property and you ask them, what are the words that come to mind when you talk about a tree farm? Uh, and they say Christmas trees, 
a plantation, future paper, money, timber, lumber, livelihood, monoculture, very similar to agricultural production. Um, and then you ask them, what does a family forest mean? And they said a legacy, a local community, a family business, recreation, education, and sustainability. But you have this last sentence. And so this is where my question comes in. But it sounds odd to say, I'm heading to our family forest. Why does it sound odd? Why do you not like that word? It's clunky. Uh, you know, I mean, so I'm in, I mean, I spend half my time in Portland. I say my family has a tree farm. Christmas, nah. Um, <laughs> but if I say I'm, 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 my family has a forest, my family has a family forest. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. What's that one guy in Oregon? He says, I'm going to one of my forests today. Mm. That the, Anyway, he, he's somebody who thinks about this a lot. And um, he says, I go, I, I'm going to one of my forests. Um, it sounds a little pretentious or, or, or pompous even, you know, I have a forest. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. But I, I think about this a lot. I feel like, so tree farmers like us, want our tree farms to be <laughs> habitat for wildlife. We want to clean air. We want clean water. We want to be able to go for walks. We want to pick salal, pick berries, pick mushrooms. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a field. It's not a, a crop, even though it is. I mean, we, we harvest. Um, but we can hold beauty and destruction together in our in our land but people from the city have a really hard time with that once it's beautiful you can't cut it down you cannot destroy anything that's beautiful and um that's not a good way to think about life i mean you know we get ugly and we die you know um you know and so i feel like it's this part of i don't know what you want to call it american western society that just cannot have the dark <laughs> part or the part that needs um, the rejuvenation. You know, we have no trouble with a corn harvested field with a bunch of stubble in it. That's no problem because it's just for a few months. But a clear cut gives people heartache, you know. Um, and even I, you know, it. yeah, it's destructive. You know, you go out into a freshly cut field and you're just like, holy cow, what happened here, you know. But you see, I mean, immediately you see stuff growing and you know that in a month, you know, in six months it's going to be planted and you're going to have this beautiful new forest happening. But um, you have to train people to see that. Um, and I, that's, it's one of, one of our goals is to bring as many people out here as we can so they can feel it and see it. Yeah. I liked your comment in here. Uh, it's, you were talking about logging is the link in the chain that brings a natural renewable source of woods into the public and often urban space. It's almost as if this handoff from rural people who tend and harvest to urban people who purchase and consume is secret and silent. And, yeah. and it's funny because one of the things that totally made me think about is it's the exact same problem we have in our food systems. 
Yes, exactly. Uh, we're so dependent on Walmart or you know wherever we go and get our chicken that we don't really re- realize the process that goes into this ability to sustain ourselves and live these comfortable lives. So that was exactly. that was a really cool parallel that you made in the book for yeah. me. Have you come up with a, a good word yet? If you were to, no. if it's not family four, <laughs> no, I, st- I I I still say tree farm. Yeah, no, I haven't. You know, there's a, a landowner up here. I do. Oh, hmm? <laughs> I was just going to say there's a landowner up here who we, we've had this philosophical debate and he is like you, but he is adamantly on the other side. Right. He does not like the word tree farm and he loves oh. this thing called uh, family forest. And they've even got like this little engraved plaque on a sign mm-hmm. that says the, their name in the family forest. Oh, so he says I'm, I, I'm going to my family forest. I, mm-hmm. wow. Oh. All right. Well, we could try. Yeah, it could, it could grow <laughs> it on could you. Grow on us, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, but I worry. I worry about this this um, not wanting to destroy beauty problem because I, I feel like it could push all tree farms to be growing trees in straight lines like the cotton hybrid along the freeway. You know, um, mm. where everything is just Dad calls them fiber farms because um, that I pe- people can understand. It's like okay. There's trees and straight lines. It's not a forest. We'll cut them down. We need paper. But once you make a beautiful forest, <laughs> then you can't cut it down anymore. Um, but we want to have both. We want to have this beautiful place and then be able to cut and then grow it again. And um, so, yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, it's like yeah. that social disconnect where you turn the water on in your faucet and, but where did that <laughs> where water did come, come from? from? And, yeah. um, it's the same with, with tree farms. People don't, they just don't no, understand, uh, the story behind no. what it takes. To- and it takes a lot. I think, you know, in my book, I have an anecdote of a man I dated my first year in Portland. You know, I brought him to the tree farm multiple times and, he still thought we should never cut another tree, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you want to give up your half acre lot and plant it in Douglas fir seedlings? I've got some. You tear down your house. Right. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. that part of the book. I, and I think this is a, it's, it's a pretty widespread issue. Um, yeah. I, I think what, you know, we get kind of, I guess, siloed or as, as foresters or forest managers you know you spend enough time out there you actually start to appreciate i think sometimes a clear cut uh yes because you know you know what's coming next you know what's going to be lush and these trees are going to be growing at a pace that they will never grow again later in life (laughs) you know what i mean it's just and it's really remarkable to just see in like just a matter of the the deer love it you know i mean so many animals are in the clear cut that aren't in the deep forest um, yeah, you so, just yeah. We, exactly we don't necessarily want say. them there, but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> the munchers, <But laughs> yeah. Any wildlife biologist will probably tell you that you know there's a there's a lack of early forest habitat. You know, young forest habitat across right. the landscape, just like there's a lack of old growth habitat, and there are species mm. out there that need those. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's all part of the cycle, and forests get destroyed naturally too you know we know that right (laughs) um so yeah i mean i'm glad in in i consider uh cowlitz ridge tree farm and the uh 
managers to be, you know, sort of powerhouse forest owners in this region <laughs> because you make my job so much easier. You're people that I can call up and say, hey, can I have a tour at your property to show someone that a clear cut's not so bad? Um, so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that. Bring the them anytime. Yes. Right. Right. You know, I think one thing that's it's it's difficult when it comes to forestry compared to agriculture is the multiple use aspect. Right. Um, I, you know, uh, when it comes to agriculture, I don't recreate where you're growing your corn. I'm not out there right. to go do my hiking. And typically now yeah. this isn't necessarily true, but typically we don't uh, associate wildlife with agriculture or other ecosystem services with agricultural production. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. we strongly so they associate that with forests because forests are a natural habitat component to the landscape. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking too, I had a, f- a friend post uh, a picture on Facebook and he was outraged because I think it was Oregon department of forestry had done a clear cut and they had clear cutted uh, one of his uh, old favorite uh, mountain biking spots. And so now this beautiful uh, trail that he was, you know, constantly riding through the trees was just this big open slash pit. Uh, and, right. you know, we can, we can have a conversation about the benefits of that, but there is a very strong emotional attachment to that landscape and, and to see that drastic change. I mean, that, that's hard to, to overcome. And, and so it's, how do you, I guess the question is like, how do you, communicate to people the benefit of this it's a good question you know i've i want a t-shirt that has concrete production steel production timber production and the timber production is going to be a forest and the concrete is going to be i don't even know what a hole in the ground and steel is going to be another hole in the ground and yeah, I mean, it's almost a, one of the reasons that trees are, or wood is, um, you know, considered protected, speed, whatever, is, is because it's so beautiful as it grows. <laughs> it's almost, it's a, it's a deficit in a way. Um, I wish it weren't, but people, I'd say, yeah, we, we can't hold these two things. We're so black and white. We, we need to have right. some gray. We need to have some abstract art training. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's hard. Also that, that guy needs to go back out there in 10 years and his trail will be back. He'll, it won't look exactly the same, but he'll be able to see some new, some new trees, even five years. But we also, right. the, the timing, we, we have no concept, uh, you know, we need to live in tree time, not, quarterly annual reports. One of my favorite lines from your book, which I think was quoting Steve, was that Seattle is Washington's biggest clear cut. Yep. (laughs) And I hope you don't mind if I steal that sometime. No, (laughs) please. It needs to be said a thousand times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People just, they complain about this while they sit literally in a concrete Mm -hmm. jungle. That's, you know, (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed as I was reading it, so, you know, I've done a lot of mill tours in my life. I, I live in a mill town. I know plenty of mill workers, but you did something really cool when you went to one of the mills in your book and you sat down and you had the foreman actually bring you several of the, um, the people that were working in the mill and you sat down and you interviewed them. Yeah. And 
And it was really interesting to hear the story. I mean, you were talking about this kid who was brand new. Um, he, he totally, you know, I think it was maybe a month, a couple, a couple months or a couple weeks. Uh, didn't really know much about the mill, but was really excited because of simply his truck had issues and they gave him oil and they helped him get home. Uh, yep. And, you know, you talked about the lady who had been working there for 19 years and she was hoping to retire there. And, and so you did something really cool by drawing not just the story of the wood, but you drew the story of the community and what that wood meant to those people and their ability to have happy lives. Yeah, no, and I think, um, I mean, Lugene and I were talking about the, the benefits of the farm and providing jobs in the community is is one of them. And if that's not an abstract thing. That Those are humans, <laughs> you know, those are those people, um, you know, the forklift driver and the kid who got oil from, from somebody at work. Um, and I don't I mean, and that, you know, that's the, you know, that, that mill is gone, uh, Reichert's, um, tragically. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, workers fascinate me uh, in all, no, workers fascinate me. People's jobs fascinate me. You know, what do you actually do every day? You know, what does nine to five look like or six to eight or whatever your job is? It, you know, how do you use your hours in a day is a really interesting question, no matter if you're the CEO or if you're pushing a broom. So can you take us a little bit through the journey? You went on, not the journey of writing the book, but you actually went through a physical journey in this in this story. Yeah. Um, can you take us through that? Sure. So I, the, <laughs> Lugene's heard this a thousand times. Oh, no. No. <laughs> I really, really, really wanted to ride the log ship all the way from Longview <laughs> to Japan. Um, and um, so first I asked... Um, some friends at Port Blakely, they, because the, they, um, sh- they had PLS, they ship out of Longview um, with a company called NYK. It's a Japanese shipping company. And they said yes at first. And then I think as it got higher up in the echelons, they're like, um, a woman's going to get on this ship by, you know, by herself. Um, and uh, anyway, it got turned into a big fat no, which was very, I was so sad. But um, then, but they were able to get us on a ship in, uh, in Longview. And we met the captain and quite a few of the, we got a tour of the ship there. And I gave the captain um, a Pentax camera. So it was like a, a what do you call those things? Instant, no, an oh. instant camera. Oh, um, Polaroid, Polaroid camera. Yeah. Oh. Um, and I was a school teacher about it all. I gave him an example notebook of how I wanted him to um, take pictures and write notes in the notebook about it. But he did it. It was amazing. So we met this guy, um, and I'm friends with him on Facebook. I'm, so I'm going to send him a book. Um, it's uh, this week. I just got a stack of them myself. So um, he um, took pictures, and then we were able to meet that ship. They went across the ocean <laughs> for two weeks, and Dad and I flew to Japan. And we met the ship at one port in Japan, and then we're on that ship for 24 hours from to another port. Um, so that was really cool to be able to see those guys. And they were happy to see us because 
they hadn't seen anybody else for two and a half weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> just the guy, one of the guys was like, you know, yeah, we're friends with the birds. We do, we, we do maintenance because we're bored. <laughs> um, so they were happy to answer all of our questions. Um, and that, that was a really cool experience. So, yeah. And I, I know I, I had lived in Japan for a couple of years um, in the eighties and spent a good decade of my life with with Japan is my a major interest of mine, but I hadn't been there since '98, um, so that was really fun to go back and use yen and practice my Japanese. That was very so that, that was actually one of my questions: was were you surprised, <laughs> given your early life and education in Japan, that this is kind of where it circled back to and how you? I know, right? Knowledge? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's an interesting. I was really happy to go to Japan, not just as a tourist. Right. Yeah. I and mean, I didn't want to go back there and just, you know, go to the temples and look like, you know, just because I, I know too much. And but so this was a really good way to go. Um, and I also I was able the is this isn't in the book, but so dad left and I stayed for another week and I went to visit some friends that I knew from way back in the day. Um, and that was really fun. And then I have a new friend in Japan excuse me, in Portland, who's from Japan. And she and her family were in Tokyo. And so I met up with them and um, ran around the city with, with them too. So that was that was a lot of fun. So and, were... and we went to Korea too. And Lujin was supposed to meet up with us in Korea, um, but she didn't. But one of a friend of hers and Steve's um, was our guide in Korea. And that, that was really great. Um, that was really a good time. And so you were following your logs from your property all the way to Japan. What was the final stop? <laughs> well, it, we we were hoping that they were our logs, but um, oh. <laughs> we had lo- we we had logged too too soon. But anyway, um, they would have been our logs if we'd logged. Um, so that that ship went to um, Four, five different ports, two in Japan, one in um, Korea, and then to China. So they had four different sorts in their hold of different um, kinds of logs that were um, being used there. One was a plywood mill. Um, I'm not sure where they went in Korea. In Korea, in um, nobody wanted to talk about importing wood. <laughs> they... Um, yeah, it was interesting. Pilsen, the uh, family friend, she had originally talked to some mills that import wood, but they stopped answering her phone calls. Um, mm. And it, it turned, I think, in the in the book, there's a story of um, a lot of the temples had to be rebuilt after World War II. And um, I mean, Korea got, you know, smashed during the Japanese occupation of Korea and then also during the Korean War. So there's a lot of rebuilding that had to be redone and they didn't have enough wood from Korea to to do it. Um, so they imported a lot of wood, but people don't, they want it to be, especially for the temples and national monuments, they want it to be Korean pine. And, you know, Douglas fir is pine. <laughs> um, so it's very difficult to tell. Um, once the bark is gone and everything, if where the wood is from, um, and this one, uh, gate had been rebuilt. Um, and soon, like a year later, the paint started chipping off and people immediately said, it's not Korean pine. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And uh, so they did this like big DNA investigation of the wood. Um, but one of the people in charge of that investigation um, committed suicide um, during the investigation. Um, wow. And I mean, it's a serious big deal, right? And but it also made me re- here I am wanting to find wood from my land in Korea, right. you know, and yeah. and they're like, I mean, they were feeling as possessive about their wood as I had been. So I was like, it's okay. I just want to see beautiful wood in temples. Um, <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't, we went to lots of temples, and both Dad, who you know knows wood inside and out, and Pilsen, who's a forestry professor, both looking at this wood, going, "Hmm, <laughs> is it Douglas fir? <laughs> is it pine? What is it?" Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah. yeah, it was interesting. You know, that's it's interesting because what that reminds me of is, you know, here in America, we love to have American-made products, right? right? And that's that's a yeah. that's a big thing. But I think that one thing that we, and I mean, this is not that this can't be applied to other things, but in a lot of, uh, I would think Asian cultures, they have this kind of reverence for structures. Um, mm-hmm. they, they've played a huge role in their, um, their culture for so long. And so it's interesting to hear that play out in that same way, you know, that they they have that same desire to want to have these products made in their home country, yeah. but also then have it applied to these. Uh, very spiritual places for them, which which have this even second layer of deep connection to their society. Right. Yeah, for sure. Many people in Korea and Japan have a deep reference for, for wood. Yeah. Were there some similarities or what were some of the similarities and differences between the mills in and the way we think about milling in America versus Japan, because you talked a little bit about going into some of the mills in Japan while you were well, there. there were such different mills. You know, the one I went to here employed sixty people. The one I went to in Japan employed five hundred. Or you know, oh, it, wow. it was just a huge, huge mill. Um, yeah, that mill. I think in the book, it, it, you know, they get three log ships a week. I mean, just so many, so much wood goes through that mill. Um, I, I, you know, the pre- precision is a name of the game there. They're very um, concerned with doing it exactly, exactly right. Um, I saw the same kind of pride in with the in the workers at Reichert's. You know, they were they were proud that they weren't using computers for everything. That they were still looking at it with their eyes and their hands. Um, I don't know if that's an American thing. That's just a that's just a Rikers thing. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's. I don't think I have enough experience to compare the two countries. I can just do the two the two mills. They're very different, though. Yeah, um, it was really interesting hearing you talk about the way they were pre prepping the wood for yes. individual homes. Like it right. wasn't just a, let's, you know, here's a dimension of lumber, put it on a box, wrap it, send it on a flatbed. And, you know, right. whoever is going to go build trusses with that. I mean, these were like, this goes yeah, to it this was for the Tanaka family. This is for yeah. the Fuji family. Yeah, no, that was amazing. And then to go see the houses being built with those, um, you know, Legos. <laughs> I mean, they went up fast. Yeah. Yeah. With just but a few I don't, people. I don't remember if I said that in the book, but. You know, so they used all this wood, but you didn't see any of it in the end. The outside was covered in tile and the inside was covered in sheetrock. Um, some of the upper 
middle class families did have wood, you know, exposed in their houses in their designs, but none of the houses that we went to see um, were like that. That was kind of sad, but mm. yeah. So it sounds really efficient to me. So it sounds efficient. Like, yeah, I mean, they're so they're pre-cutting the wood for its final destination, so that essentially yep. there's just no waste. Uh, right. That's 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 impressive. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It was. And they were very proud. Um, one of the, uh, the, so the guy who showed us around there, Taka, forgetting his full name, he's in Longview now. Um, and he, he's come out to the tree farm a couple times. He came to a 4th of July party here and then mm-hmm. he actually came out and looked at logs that we were selling off the, the Fen Hill property in, in Winlock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, you know, so one of the things, you know, they don't want any stain in their wood, even though it's not a structural thing. It's just purely cosmetic. Hmm. But then you don't even see it. It's in the inside of the walls. You're just kind of like, come on, guys. <laughs> What's the deal here? But, you know, whatever. They, you want know, they know it's there. They know it's there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so you were having the story. And so we were talking earlier. One of the cool things you do in your book is it, it's. Uh, you kind of have this poetic organizations to some of the paragraphs. It's not just a, a writing. Is there a name for this style? It's, it's, it's not a straightforward narrative is what I, what I say. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there's this one part in here. Um, he was, you were talking about the ship captain and then you've got this little, these pictures of, of right. from a log ship. And then underneath right. it says 6,409 board feet of wood 1300 log trucks 200 acres of 40 year old trees the numbers stagger the appetite of the world's population overwhelms and so you know as i was sitting there thinking about this um it was interesting because you went through this whole process uh in writing the story um trying to attempt to get on the ship which i actually want to come back to that um and, and it was along the way you interviewed all these different people, all these different cogs in the wheel. And I think all everybody gets to see one individual piece. And your dad even said it in the book, or you wrote what your dad said, of the best piece that we get is being the, the tree farmer of growing the woods. Yep. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who spent the time to go see the entire wheel of this industry from top to bottom, what did you walk away with this? What what do you think, looking back on it, is your perception of forestry now? Because I think at one point you even wrote, oh, I don't I don't know where it is, but you you were overwhelmed by the machinery and um and and you know you yeah I, think you I, wrote I, I don't like watching wood being slain <laughs> in the <laughs> in the mills. I don't mind it being slain out here in the woods. That's sort of fascinating to watch a logger you know, fall a tree, um, especially someone hand cutting the feller bunch is a little less romantic. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but, um, but the, the whirring saws in the, the mills, especially in Japan, there, I mean, that mill, you, there were no windows, there was no outside air coming in. You were just, you know, in this concrete, um, space. Um, so I totally agree with dad that, um, the best part of this, of the production of wood is right out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being able to be on out in the trees. Um, I mean, it's fine that it, it gets there 
to the mill. Otherwise, what are we going to do? You know, we've got how many millions and people, billions of people on this earth. Um, so unless we drastically change the way we live, <laughs> um, you know, we need the wood. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, I think any job where you get to touch the wood is a good job. Like a logger's got a good job. Mm -hmm. um, the mill worker who even pulling on the green chain, you know, that's, that's a brutal job, but it's not a bad one. Um, you know, the carpenters, anybody who gets to actually touch the wood, I think that that's a good job. I think uh, it would... <laughs> Most foresters too, and I, you know, in our profession, probably agree with you that that is the that's where they want to be. They want to be yeah. out there, right? And yeah. I remember taking a wood products class. You know, it's just part of the forestry degree, and um, you know, most of us were, oh, this is interesting. You know, it's cool. It's good to know. Uh, obviously, I understand why it's required, but there was only one guy that was like, yes. <laughs> this is it. This is my, and I'm like, I'm so glad you exist. Because right, exactly. Because I, <laughs> I want well, to be. I don't have wood. to do it, right? right. And yeah. you can be in there doing all your design stuff, and uh, and he's loving it still. Yeah, <laughs> to this day. Yeah. So, so I wanted to go back uh, to a specific point that you wrote about, and it was when you were about to get on the boat, and the the. Japanese shipping company called you into the office and it was already predetermined when you're reading this, that you weren't going to be going on that boat. You weren't going to be on that two and a half week long journey. Uh, and you made this comment. You said, this is the first time in my life. I wish I was a man. Uh, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now I can't, I, I, there's no way I can have this conversation with, with any background to this. Cause I am a man. I don't understand that. <laughs> Uh, but you, and it's funny because at the beginning of our conversation today, you said that you were paid like 50 cents less for going out and doing work on the same work on the same part of land. And that way you were even paid less uh, to go out and pick red huckleberries. Um, can, can you talk well, I to think, me? I think we all got, we all three got 25 cents a, a court for the huckleberries but yeah well i would be paying twice the amount for the huckleberries <laughs> thank you thank you thank you very much now that was a get out of my hair job <laughs> yeah. right but I'm, I'm curious just what has your perception of being a landowner been as and this is a question honestly to both of you um as a female in in this industry which is kind of this historic rough and tough backwoods you know dirty uh saw is the man's glitter type of thing as you said Sa sawdust sawdust is the man's glitter yeah yeah right and what would you say also to other uh female individuals out there who you know maybe what is their benefit in owning land hmm. well we were talking about this the other day and i was saying you know both of us we're sort of the traditional first women in the blank. We're a sister, we're sister-in-law, we're the daughter. We, you know, um, politicians' wives are the ones who run for office after the guy dies, you know. <laughs> um, but it's a great thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I have really nothing that I can think of in my past that's negative about it. Um, I recognize even when I was working 
in the natural resource field uh, that many times I was the only woman in in the meetings or there were very few. We were definitely in the minority. Of course, I think that's, that's still changed. true. Oh, well, I don't know about that. In the, in the natural, natural resource field. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. it's changed quite a bit since, uh, but uh, as far as since we've been working and I, I don't feel any prejudice or Mm-mm. I sometimes I feel like if I say something it's not heard until a man says it you know um well, just like true. on a, on a tour you know you're like you not when I'm leading the tour but you're you you know you're on a tour and you say something and then you know oh and then the guy says the same next same thing. Oh, what a great idea. You're like, what happened? You know, um, but that's certainly not um, unique to forestry world. Right. And I think there is, there are more women. Um, doing, and mm-hmm. Elaine O'Neill is the uh, executive director of the Washington Farm, Farm, Farm Forestry Association. And she's a, you know, a strong, smart, powerful woman that mm-hmm. people listen to. Um, so I think she's she's given some good leadership to to the group. Um, so yeah, but there, I mean, there's not a lot of people out there, you know. There, but we say that, but you know, almost all tree farms are owned by husband and wife teams. Um, mm-hmm. But traditionally, it's you know, I mean, even when when I write my book or when I've written an article about dad being a tree farmer. Um, you know, mom and dad bought the land. <laughs> um, it wasn't just dad, even though it was definitely dad's dream. Um, so, you know, I think women have of- often been in the support role, often doing the books mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. for the um, logging operations or whatever. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next, you know, generation or two if uh, more women start. I mean, you know, there's a ton you can do out there. I mean, e- and we got us. We got an electric saw. <laughs> we haven't used it much yet. The battery operated chainsaw. Yes. <laughs> but the battery only lasts an hour, which is just it's right. about right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I actually like. I prefer my little silky pruning saw. You can get, you know, you can cut mm-hmm. something down about that big and without any noise. So that's right. okay. Yeah. But I'm actually kind of the same way. I like a good. I'll use a pruning saw up to the point that I probably shouldn't be you know right yeah 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 but I I think you make a really good point and Lujan I'm I'm glad you brought up you know working for the NRCS because I I mean the natural resource profession for a long time has been a boys club um there's Mm -hmm. just no question about it but I do I I think you're right it's completely changed and I I don't know the statistics I imagine they probably still skew male um but I, I do feel like the landscape is changing and, and it's such a good thing. And also for, like you said, for, for forest owners, um, I, I hope that's changing in a similar way. But also, as you said, I, the women were always there. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, so and I, I, yeah. So, yeah well, an- really anonymous was thing. a woman, you know. They, yeah. 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 Behind every great yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whenever I go on a site visit with, uh, you know, a, a couple, the the wife's there too, and yep. mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know why we don't count them. In well, the it used to be, you know, thing, you know, yeah, it, it used to be we you'd go to a, a twilight tour and you'd go around and introduce, and the man would introduce 
himself and his wife. Oh, that happens still. It still happens sometimes. (laughs) And she just stands there, you know, and doesn't say her own name or, yeah. But anyway. So I guess the other thing that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, another thing that needs to happen is we need to expand our membership to non white landowners. And I think there's a lot of uh, Hispanic landowners that are starting to own land now. One of the tree farmer, the tree planters that planted here, he owns 40 acres across, just across Cowlitz River here. And I'm sure he's not the only one. And so, no, I think there's a lot of work to be done to diversify the, the voices of tree farmers. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and that actually segues even better into my question, which is, you know, in extension forestry, but this also pertains to you know, DNR and conservation districts, anybody's trying to help small forest owners. Um, you know, we don't get to control really who owns the land. Uh, right. Very mm-hmm. limited. We, we would love to be able to support, like you said, more minority and women landowners and do however we can or to become landowners. But what I wonder from, from you is, you know, what, if any, you know, special support or special effort, um, would you like to see from the agencies that be to help support women and minority landowners, forest owners in particular. There is a chapter of women owning woodlands, woodlands but we looked mm-hmm. into it and I think there it's based out of Everett. I just signed up for it again. <clears throat> um, Excuse me. Yeah, I, but they seem to not to be very active right now oh, um, really? because of COVID, I think. But yeah. But we could start our own chapter down yeah. for the Southwest. We could. <laughs> I think cool. one, one, I think one thing is just to think of consciously think of women and minorities when you're like thinking who's going to be on the next committee, you know, like, you know, people just think of men. I mean, it's just sort of how it it goes. And so you have to retrain your brain to think, Mm -hmm. Oh, who should be on this committee or who should help plan this or what, what speakers should we invite? Um, You know, just make sure that your list is not all, all white men. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that can get a little stretchy sometimes, you know, like, well, maybe there's not somebody that, but just to actively think about it, I think is important. Yeah. Uh, so I've got another question for your book or from your book, cause I read it a bunch <laughs> okay. of it this morning. So I, I had all these sticky notes where I wrote down questions. Um, so there's this chapter and after things had kind of gone South with trying to get a, a trip planned to ride the log trip, you had gone back and there was the second meeting. Uh, and one of the things you found out was if you were going to do this trip, the only way they were going to let you do it was with another individual. And it wasn't implied that the other individual was had to be a male. But I think what you came to the realization that the one person who would be most willing to do that with you is your dad. And so you wrote this, this thing. I want to go to the meeting with Captain Sakai by myself. But dad says we should go together and show them our power. We are a powerful duo. How can I maintain my power next to his? I want to ride the log ship with dad as my companion and fellow traveler, not with a guard or not with my guard up protecting myself and my story. He will be a part of my story. He already is. How can I be the main character of this chapter, not just an observer of dad and the others? And so I circled how can I, and I wrote next to it, what is the answer? (laughs) (laughs) It's a constant struggle. Um, No. Um, 
That's such an interesting people. It's you're not the first person to notice that part of the book, which is interesting to me. Um, you know, I mean, my uh, have you met my dad? <laughs> nope. Um, yeah, no, he's a powerful human being. He's a wonderful human being, um, but he is a force to be reckoned with. Um, and uh, you know. You just have to keep, I mean, like in the book, I had to take him to the sign that says, lead, follow, get the hell out of the way and say, yeah, like dad, <laughs> I'm leading. Mm-hmm. You got to follow. And he, he bowed, which was hilarious, right? He's like, oh, I get it. You know, and we're going to Japan. So he bows to me. Um, but then the next day I hear him telling his brother, you know, or he, then the next day he keeps telling me the questions I'm supposed to ask. So he, you really just have to say dad and you have to say it like 10 times yeah and then he gets it and he was he's a great traveler we had so much fun in japan and and we he and i just drove to wisconsin (laughs) to get some bookshelves anyway um we we drove out highway 12 and came back on highway 20 you know in 10 days and you know he's just fun to to be with he's Mm -hmm. fun out in the woods um but he is a big presence and Mm -hmm. you know if if you want it to be your story, then you just have to keep telling him that. Well, I think we're pretty close to wrapping things up here. So then I guess my question for you is, there are a lot of landowners who purchase land in this kind of hurrah, you know, get out and and purchase my own plot of uh, freedom. And (laughs) then they come to the realization of how much, work goes into owning and managing small forest land and there's actually a really high rate of people buying small parcels and then in the first several years turning around and selling those parcels what would you say to folks that are listening you know what is your message to them of the benefits of owning land and the benefits of putting the work in to uh you know manage and maintain that land in the long term, you know, that you've you've come to learn for both of you over the time that you've lived on and managed that property. Depending on, you know, what their original, I, I assume you're saying they're buying, say, a 20 or 40 acre parcel that has some trees on it. You know, what are, what are your long term goals? Uh, why are you buying this? And if you're wanting to, you know, maintain it as a a small forest, then I'd be talking to people who are experienced in that and to make sure you understand at least what you're getting yourself into. Uh, how much, you know, time and money do you have to to devote to it? I mean, to make it successful. It's a lifestyle. It, it really is yeah. a lifestyle. Um, um, yeah, I think, and I'll, you know, join, join the groups that where you can be with other people that mm-hmm. are having the same questions and challenges. Um, tree farmers are a great group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that y- if you can get part of a community, then that helps you not feel alone out there when you're pulling scotch broom for the 10th time, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but I, you know, see if you really enjoy being on the land. If you don't, then, you know, 
don't stay, but I would give it some time. I think people are too, they're in a rush. You know, you, you gotta be able to sit out there with the trees. Um, it's a long-term investment. Yeah. It's long-term. Sure. Yeah. But. It's not a short thing. Yeah. And I mean, be out there, you know, go have picnics. Don't just work out there. Um, but you know, go for, go for walks and bring your friends and, uh, um, but yeah, may, may, having having clear clear objectives, mm-hmm. I think, helps um, with the why of of if you don't know why, then yeah. But if you can figure that out, then that works. Uh, that's I think really well put because the the person that I pictured when Sean you were describing that kind of turnover is a lot of times it is that's person that comes in and they are just bright eyed and full of just energy to get out there and do stuff and it's great uh but they they don't set achievable goals like you Mm -hmm. said and then they burn out and it Mm -hmm. seems because like you said you can you could be out there every minute of every day on a tree farm if you wanted to there's always something to work on and that that's true even for five or ten acres you know there's always stuff to do and so yeah setting achievable goals and having some of those goals be to enjoy your forest right. are are great like i love your your gemini grove um, yeah you know that's a right. great place to enjoy your forest everyone should have one mm-hmm. you know what you said something about taking time and slowing down and i i i kind of like that because i feel like that's why a lot of people buy land is that they want that place to go to to be able to slow down and disconnect from the, the main hubbub of the world that's going on around them but I think that sometimes then they realize the amount of work that goes into managing it and they forget about that. Uh, and then it becomes like another project. And so I think that right. like what you said, I mean, that's super important is to remember to remember why you bought the property in the first place and, and reconnect mm-hmm. with that and stay connected with that. And don't just only look at it as a, another project or a more work yeah. to do. And find like-minded people. I mean, really find, find your local chapter of the, or any group. I mean, that's mm-hmm. out there doing with the same values that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, if you can meet so you know, see the results from uh, your work, that's just more incentive. Yeah. To keep going. To keep it going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you start failing miserably, I mean, things, you know, gets run over with blackberries or something, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's just, That's not fun. It's, it doesn't yeah. uh, give you motivation to keep going. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lou Jean and Anne, for taking the time to come out and join us today. Well, and, thank you uh, for inviting yeah. us. Yes. Yeah, we, we really appreciated your your time and talking about your story. By the way, just as for you say it one more time for us, the, your book and where people can find it. Oh, yeah. So the book is um, The Ground at My Feet, Sustaining a Family in a Forest. It's published by OSU Press, so you can find it on their website. Um, and it's in local bookstores up and, up and down the west side of Washington. I'm not sure if east side has it or not. And of course, you can get it on Amazon. But go to go go to OSU Press first if you're going to order it online. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And to all of our listeners that have been joining in, thank you for coming and staying with us for this conversation. And we look forward to having you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.